0: And welcome to Anchoring Minds, the Writing and Literacies podcast. My name is Christopher Thrasas, and I am your host.
1: My name is Kylie Office, and I am your co-host.
0: The Writing and Literacies SIG podcast aims to highlight scholarship, discuss contemporary issues, and engage in conversation with SIG members and the greater writing and literacies field. Through a robust dialogue, we hope to ignite nationwide discussion amongst faculty and graduate students connecting topics that are timely, and pertinent to the scholarship of writing and literacies and the broader field of education. On this episode of Inquiring Minds, we have four distinguished guests joining us to discuss artificial intelligence and the possibilities and challenges it poses for the landscape of education and the world at large.
1: Sarah Burris recently completed her doctoral work in the Department of Teaching and Learning at Vanderbilt, where she researched teaching and learning about AI and ethics with middle school students. She is a former public librarian and mom of two, and she holds a Master's in Library and Information Science from the University of South Carolina and a BA from Yale University. Continuing her work on AI ethics and education, she is joining the National Science Foundation Engage AI Institute as a postdoctoral researcher at Vanderbilt. Christian Eret is an associate professor in the Faculty of Education at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. His previous work as a secondary literacy teacher in the southeastern U.S. continues to influence his work at McGill and in the field. Christian's current research in Canada includes the co-design of literacy learning programs for digital equity programs alongside communities and schools in Montreal, for whom such opportunities have been historically, institutionally, and systematically constrained. Through this community-partnered work, Christian develops critical social theory toward more effective, material, and embodied understandings of youth's experiences with literacy and digital media. His work has received national and international awards, including an NCPE Promising Researcher Award and a Next Generation Researcher Award from the University of Bristol. He has published widely in journals and volumes, such as the Journal of Literacy Research, Research in the Teaching of English, Learning, Media, and Technology, TESOL Quarterly, Cognition and Instruction, and in the most recent edition of the seminal volume, Theoretical Models and Processes of Literacy. He currently serves as co-editor of Reading Research Quarterly, Cheryl McLean, Natalia Kursikova, and Jennifer Brassbell.
0: Dr. Raul Alberto Mora is an associate professor at the School of Education and Pedagogy at Universidad Pontificia Boliviana in Medellín, Colombia, where he teaches courses and supervises students at the bachelor's and doctoral levels. Dr. Mora has taught and guest lectured in person and virtually at universities in Colombia, Poland, the Czech Republic, Brazil, Spain, the US, Mexico, and Norway. His current research explores second language literacies in urban spaces in gaming communities, the pedagogical implementation of alternative literacies in second language education, and the need for critical frameworks for English language and plurilingualism in and from the global south. Topics he develops with the award-winning Literacies in Second Languages Project Research Lab. His publication track record includes multiple peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. He also co-edited the Handbook of Critical Literacies and is editing the volume Understanding Second Language Users as Gamers, Language as Victory, He is one of the founding members of the Transnational Critical Literacies Network and currently sits on the Literacy Research Association Board of Directors. Brad Robinson is an assistant professor of educational technology and secondary education in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at Texas State University attention to the creative and critical capacities of digital technologies in literacy education is central to brad's scholarship which has examined such topics as novice video game design digital platforms in and out of education and artificial intelligence his commitment to mindful authentic and just implementations of digital technologies runs deep and it informs his work in support of ethical and equitable literacy education across ages and contexts. These scholars were so insightful and engaging, I lost track of time listening to them. One hour went by too quickly and they said a lot during this time, which offered us much to consider as we sit in the present moment and reflect on these technological tools and their influence on writing processes. We hope you enjoy listening to them just as much as we did. Hello, I'm Christopher Therasas and we are very lucky to be in conversation today with four great scholars, Sarah Burris, Dr. Christian Eret, Dr. Raul A. Mora, and Dr. Brad Robinson, who will be sharing their insights about artificial intelligence or AI and its impact on the field. I know Kylie was excited to ask the first question, so I'll let her take it away.
1: Thank you, Chris. Yes, I was excited um, because recording this episode was actually Chris's idea. And I immediately asked if I could support him as his co-producer because I know so very little about AI Um, and I wanted to learn more. And I thought maybe this episode might be like a spark that motivates me to delve into this world a little bit more. So can you tell us what was that spark for you? What was that motivation for you? What made you be excited to be in conversation with us today about AI. Sarah, I'm going to throw it to you first.
2: Thank you. So I'm delighted to be here. My story about how I got interested in researching AI is a is a bit of a sad one. So I'm sorry to start off on a kind of a sad note, but um, it's, it's why I am here doing this work today. Um, I actually was a public librarian for um, almost 6 years before i uh came to research working in a public library um in a young adult department and an adult department in Charleston, South Carolina. Um and so i knew coming into my doctoral program that i wanted to research something at the intersection of technology and literacy because i saw how important both of those things were in my daily work. Um and so I knew that coming in, but it wasn't until I read this one. It was like one of these earth shaking books for me. I have it here. It's Algorithms of Oppression um, by Safiya Noble. Um, and it's a great book if you haven't read it. Uh, but <clears throat> I got to chapter three, and the main example that Dr. Noble uses to talk about um, Google search algorithms is, um, the example of Dylan Roof who, um, murdered my coworker, um, a librarian at Charleston County Public Library. And it wasn't until I read that description of his radicalization he attributes in an online manifesto attributed to him. Um, he talks about how, um, a Google search result was a major turning point in his ideological development um, and his sort of embrace of white supremacy. And so at that moment, I realized how consequential the AI driven information systems we're using are for uh, all of our lives. Um, and that terrible. Violence that touched um, my coworkers' lives and just our the the whole library system, the whole community, the whole nation um, could be traced back, in part, of course, to a Google search. Um, really uh, honed my interest in thinking about well, what what might we do. In terms of education around those issues, like what if, uh, what if there had been some way that a teacher or a librarian or somebody or even a product developer or designer um, could have um, intervened before this awful, awful act? Um, And so that got me thinking about how we might do the kind of critical education that I'm uh, that I've pursued in my um, my dissertation, and then hopefully we'll do so beyond. So I'm sorry to open on a sad note, but that's that. That was my spark um, for for why my motivation for doing this research and how I got drawn into AI in particular was thinking about Google search ranking algorithms um, and the the intersection of the system and the um, the social.
3: It's a really powerful story, Sarah. Thank you for for sharing that. Um, w- one thing that your story made me think about is um, that AI is a very' it's trending. There's a lot of hype around AI right now. Um, and that's been prompted, of course, by the innovations in generative AI, like the image generators and um, text generators like Chat GPT. But what you're calling attention to is something that's I think really important, which is that um artificial intelligence, which are you know technologies d- designed to mimic human capacities, have been with us for a while now, and they've been um shaping social relations in and in, in all kinds of ways, including violent ones. And so when we talk about like uh, AI right now and we're having these um discussions around chat GPT. Etc. It's important not to lose sight of the fact that recommendation algorithms, like you were talking about, are also um, artificial intelligence um, technologies. And those kinds of recommendation algorithms are at work uh, in in education as well, like in the uh, in the reading platforms that students use. So that that basic like logic of um, personalization, recommendation, um, it's like it, it is a uh, AI has been with us for a while. I think it's important to recognize that.
4: Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us, Sarah. Um I, I feel similarly that as Brad is saying, that AI has been with us for so long that it's almost to some, it's become mundane or invisible. Um, especially the, the recommendation algorithms. So when I work with teenagers now, you know, I think one of the things that really pushed me into the space was watching uh teenagers using the same platforms that I use, like Google, but doing doing so with AI or algorithms in mind, imagining ways in which they might be training an algorithm to give them what they want, or the way in which the algorithm might be speaking to them or telling them something about their identity. Um, we hear a lot about, I think Vicki Carr- Carrington wrote about algorithmic identities in this way, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, as youth become more and more savvy at working algorithms. Um, I, I think it's really important to ask, you know, what what that even means. Are they actually um savvy at working algorithms? Are they imagining that they're working algorithms? And what does that mean for critical literacy if part of it is uh, is not wholly rational, right? The idea that we can actually work with something that is completely black boxed. Um so the more mundane they become I think the the more we sort of let our guards down, imagining that we're actually, we have more agency agency than we do in in online spaces. And I think that really troubles conceptualizations of literacy that have really um, heretofore placed the human at the the center, right? Uh, Assumed human agency in a way that uh, AI is really troubling.
5: I wanna jump in first of all and resonate with Christian and Brad about that we're really sorry that you had to go through that on the one hand. But on the other hand, that starting with this is important because it kind of situates the conversation and we have that this is not just something we're doing because it's trendy or because it's cool or because it's the flavor of the month. For us, and I can I mean I speak about it, I know I've had conversations with Christian and with Brad about this. This is not something we just do because it's the flavor of the month or it's trendy. It's because we have devoted our lives as scholars to look at these issues, and there are some social responsibility conversations that we need to have when we look at this idea of AI. When I get into this, I don't think I got into AI just for getting into AI. I think it's a consequence of work I've been doing on digital literacies and multiliteracies. But looking at what I, I'm always interested in looking at the historical perspective and not just keeping track of the current conversations or the trendy conversations that are happening today, but that those conversations are framed through history. And if we look at the history of the internet, I said in a conversation with other colleagues the other day, if you think about it, we can arguably say that AI in digital spaces has been around for at least 30 years if we start counting from the invention of the browser in 1992. So we sometimes we lose track of the history and how things have evolved. And I think in order to continue the conversation moving forward, um, I wait because t- today is JGPT. Tomorrow, it's going to be something else. And if we just simply move from one platform to the next without keeping track of the big picture, which is the historical the evolution that has happened, then um, the conversation we're going to have is just going to be, it's going to ring hollow. So I think that your story centres this conversation in oh no no we we're not just having this conversation because we're scholars we're having this conversation because we're also advocates because we through our research we want to show that we care about some of the larger questions that today's iterations of ai are bringing to the forefront but that those conversations are the consequence of 30 years of people playing around in online spaces, people tinkering with these technologies. Uh, and you can even go way back to the 80s and go way back to the 60s. I mean, thinking some of the work I do with video games, how it's part of that. And you have to go all the way back to Atari in the 1980s, as simple as it was, to sometimes understand why we are having the conversations with chat GPT we're having today
3: another point to, to um kind of add to your uh point there Raul, um i i totally agree that the historical perspectives are really important and i think this kind of links to sarah's um you know moving a uh, story because um you know this the theme of this podcast is around artificial intelligence and i think it's important to hold in this conversation how the troubled history of the concept of intelligence um and you know um Chat GPT produced by OpenAI, open, AI. open AI, by AI stated mission is to pursue artificial general intelligence. And the notion of general intelligence, as many of us learned in our introduction to, you know, education classes, has a, 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 a incredibly racist and traumatic history. And so, you know, when you when you think about its origins um in eugenics, um, and you can like pull that thread right on through to um, you know, Dylan Roof searching um, recommendation algorithms conceived as AI, um, as part of this larger ecology driven by tech developers pursuing artificial general intelligence. And there's like a very troubling strand there. So I I, um, I agree that um, foregrounding that story is an incredibly powerful and, and important way of framing this conversation. And I don't know, I'm interested in y'all's thought on this, but I sometimes struggle with the even talking about artificial intelligence itself, because it's like, I wish there was a better, better language that carried less, less baggage. But it's like we've just kind of all, all, all settled on it. Um, but sometimes I do feel some friction um, when I think
5: about it. I mean, but that's, a, that's actually a good question, Brad. Um, why did we settle for artificial intelligence? Even that question alone is worth a conversation. I. Right? I'm kinda of thinking in many ways it's because of, because um science fiction kinda of st- kinda of brought that up at some point earlier than let's say literacy did. Um so since they kinda they kinda planted that flag, we just kinda took it and ran with it. But I think that is, I mean, even even what it means to talk about artificial intelligence, even the the way we understand it and sometimes we misunderstand it, and then sometimes the way we appropriate it, misappropriate the term. Um, sometimes that alone, uh, becomes a source of the fears that we are witnessing today. Um, when you talk to educators, when you talk to school teachers, when you talk to parents, even the very, the very word and how sketchy that word actually is and how that is like, yeah, even the question of what's artificial intelligence like, sometimes I'm like, I don't know. I, I heard people saying, and kind of Asimov kind of used it, I think, wasn't And so you can use it, but it's really hard to tackle. But if you are thinking about the things that we luster within artificial intelligence, it's easier to have the conversation. So I think at some point we have to answer the question if the term itself is causing more harm than good in the way we can conceptualize it and apply it in educational contexts.
2: Yeah, I I have spent a lot of time with um, middle schoolers and undergrads talking about what AI is and what it means. Um, And it's a sticky, it's a sticky thing. It's hard to sort of tease out what the, you know, AI is like a technical object. Maybe we use other words to distinguish different models, like, um, you know, a deep learning model, um, a generative adversarial network. Um we talk about machine learning, unsupervised machine learning, supervised machine learning so we can get technical and we can talk about um a i as a science fiction object um or as um you know something around which discourse is created um problematically and unproblematically, but I think yeah, this is absolutely something that um I think is is worth troubling. Um, and it's, it's tough. And there have been a lot of people who have (laughs) sort of, I have seen so many diagrams of like, this is AI, but this is not AI. This is real AI, but this is not real AI. Um, and so a lot of people try to tease those things out. And I, I think, um, uh, that's why having this conversation is so useful. And I, I actually, I'm surprised that, that, um, AI has stuck. I feel like When I first started reading about AI, um, there was kind of a movement to differentiate, to use machine learning when we were talking about um, what we are calling AI now, um, to sort of get away from this idea that it's an artificial intelligence, because it's neither artificial nor particularly intelligent in a lot of ways. so I'm surprised that, that that this term has stuck, but it seems like it has. But yeah, I'd be interested to hear what other people think about that, that staying power too.
4: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think, you know, for me, I, I came to this party a little bit late too. So I didn't start reading. Actually, I probably started reading around, what was it, 2019, Sarah? Sarah had a brilliant piece in the British Journal of Educational Technology that everyone should read. Um, I, think, I think that's the right year. Um, and so I came to it a little bit later, but... Pieces like Sarah's and, and and work like from scholars like Brad, I think, made me more attuned to it in the research settings that I, that I work in, especially with with teenagers. And I think for me, AI came alive when it actually affected us, when it actually inserted itself into our lives in some in some way. And so for me, you know, I, the categorizations I think are, are important at a top level, but. Uh, as we're working with youth and helping to, them to understand, uh, working alongside them to understand the ways in which they're using literacies in their lives, I think the moments that it comes up and then what happens in those moments. So for example, you know, you can imagine, I've, I've heard a lot of people uh, using ChatGPT to write, help write papers, right? So not maybe actually writing the actual paper, but maybe getting a draft out. And so that seems like, the chat GPT becomes a part of the, the process of writing in that sense. But then, you know, what, what do we lose when that happens? Well, we, one of the things that we lose is, uh, you know, walking around thinking. Um, we lose, uh, some of that sort of procrastination process. Well, it makes it, you know, chat GPT might make it more efficient to, to write, but that procrastination that chat GPT sort of stands in for, is, is a part of the a, a, a process of thinking where some of the our own black box speaking out like a human mind is actually doing work that we don't quite understand, but that's part of what makes us human, right? So, you know, where where is the, the intelligence in, in that story? I think it's, it, for me, it's like, where's the, the human? Where's the the humanity that is getting, it's not changed, but it's getting trouble, Right. It's getting troubled, getting fuzzier to to distinguish between human and machine and how is the machine actually changing how we operate as humans. I think that feeling of potential loss for me is a really important place to begin thinking about uh, the place of of AI and and literacy and and pedagogy in particular too.
2: Christian, do you think... So, you know, there's this big... um there's an idea that AI is um, going to change the shape of work in many industries, right? Um, and people who people are sort of arguing that some people argue that well, people will still have jobs; they'll just be different jobs. And I'm wondering, do you think the same could be said for the writing process? Like, it's going to change how we write, it'll shift the thinking, but it's maybe not a thinking loss, just a thinking change. So if we decide that um that generating a first draft or generating ideas or whatever wherever we want to draw the ethical line is acceptable um for the task, the writing task at hand. But the thinking comes at critiquing and modifying and changing um, I wonder, I don't know. I wonder if then it might not be as grave a loss um, first. And then second, I I think, well, I think if if we can do it carefully, um, if we can teach the critical skills, um, I think that are needed also to interrogate the bias and stereotypes that this kind of tool does reproduce. Um, then maybe we can start asking students to do that kind of work, just in a different way. But I'm I'm still I'm not convinced that it isn't a loss too. But yeah, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that.
4: Yeah, I that's a really great question. And for me, what I'm thinking about as we're going through this is you know, a particular system in which that whole scenario is embedded, right? So you know. I think it's, for me, a systemic question So far as, you know, are we feeling that the need, say a university student, feeling the need to use CHAT-GPT to be more efficient because they feel so pressured to get papers on faster and faster. If that's the case, then, you know, it can feel like more of a loss because there's a, a particular kind of process that gets, um um papered over and chat GPT just feeds into this system of efficiency right um making it more so and making us feel something um more stressful in that scenario right so i think i, I think I, those sorts of questions have to be really carefully considered as you're pointing out sarah but in those in those larger systems and in a specific
2: contexts i also wonder too about uh I think we need to pay very close attention to the fact that we are using a corporate tool, one corporate tool in most cases um, to do this kind of work. And it, I think we need to take that very seriously. I think that often gets lost too. Is like, well, if we are, you know, if, if we're using this one thing, millions of us, um, to do our writing or to start our drafts in ways that we know that know are already problematic. And even if we know those things and are able to interrogate them and shape them afterwards, after we get this, you know, text that's produced for us, we still have to think how we're, 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 then we're always writing with that company.
3: um, I'm I'm glad you mentioned this idea of like, uh, is something lost or is it different? And, uh, and, and, what, and what's being lost and what's being gained, it's super interesting. And it makes me think about um, the kind of state of literacy studies and, and how our field was kind of making sense of the emergence of um, social media. And, and early on, um, it was very much the idea that like social media platforms um, were these like democratizing forces um, that now uh, students didn't just have to write essays for their teachers or whatever. They could like write. Authentic texts and like um, put them out into the world through social media, and this is something that like when I was a high school English teacher, I was heavily invested in this. Like I, I was a, a powerful believer that like teaching and getting students to invest in their literacy practices was so much easier and 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 more fulfilling and nourishing when they had people beyond me, the whole world, to be an audience, and so it was all very exciting. Um, but you know, I think if you ask you know if i could ask myself back then or if we could go back time and say you know are there some things that maybe literacy studies might have been thinking about then that we weren't that we weren't thinking about we would be thinking well yeah like um algorithmic echo chambers um misinformation um, all those kinds of things i think there's so many lessons that we would what we would take and so i think that this opportunity this the the the, the um, proliferation of of ai um, especially in the, in the context of literacy, I think it's a, I think it's important that we learn from um, the past and how that evolved, so that we don't replicate those same um, perhaps mistakes and and not being vigilant enough. So I just want to kind of underline your attention to being like however whatever we do, we need to make sure we do it very carefully um, and and not lose sight of, of of the lessons that we can learn from that historical perspective as we kind of figure out how to reckon with these technologies.
5: And I, and I think that kind of dovetails, and you know, I want to really go. I'm looking at the questions, and the thing about the challenges, I think, is what I, I think when I really jump in here. And one of the issues I've seen that it's what happens all the time when um, these new things emerge, it's the visceral reactions to it. So I I have seen in the past month um, we have seen that. Journals and publishers and institutions are blurting out statements um, and policies about whether or not ChatGPT can be a co-author, whether Chat whether or not you can use ChatGPT. But, but it seems there is a lot of a lot of the policies, and I've been reading a uh, bunch of them that I've seen over the past month. There is always this visceral reaction to the prohibition. To the outlawing of that. Like, yeah, we have to outlaw ChatGPT, GPT. Like, okay, why? Why do we have to outlaw Ch-G-P-T? We GPT? Why, why did we have to outlaw social media? Uh, 50 years ago when Facebook became super popular and ev- literally everybody and their mother joined Facebook. Um, and then we had the reactions to Twitter and the reactions to Snapchat and the reaction to TikTok and the reaction to whatever is gonna come tomorrow. But there's always this visceral reaction to to curtail, to outlaw it. And I'm like, okay, I. So that's why I resonate with your argument. Like we need to really think carefully about when um, Sarah was asking the question about writing. So what does it mean to write in the era in the era of ChatGPT? And it means we need to look carefully, for example, at what ChatGPT does. And that's one thing that with my partner, we, we spitball ideas to each other all the time. And one of the things I noticed is ChatGPT is going to give you a very, very standard four to five paragraph essay. Incredibly standard, incredibly plain, incredibly vanilla if you start looking into it. But that's not the conversation we're having. We're not having that conversation about let's like, oh no, we're like, oh my god, students are using ChatGPT uh to write their paper. Like, okay, can we stop for one second and really look at what's what ChatGPT is blurring out? Can we start the conversation there? I mean, as in the level of baseline text that is producing, a text that is incredibly primitive. If you look at it, if you start looking at the text that ChatGPT gives you, like at its core, it's incredibly primitive. Once you start looking at, you start looking carefully, you know, at at all the little wrinkles that text has. But we're not using that as a possibility to help our students improve their writing and write better. We're simply saying, oh, students are going to jump into ChatGPT. And they're gonna ask him to write the essays for homework assignments. And like, okay, first of all, if, if my students can submit an assignment for my class using ChatGPT, I need to go back and look at my assessment. I mean, the first thing I'm gonna to have to go back at the, end of the term is I need to go back and look at my assessments and let me let me explore carefully what I'm doing because if they can outsource their homework to ChatGPT, I need to have a lot of coffee. Over the summer and sit down and think carefully my curriculum. But if we can think about the possibilities for conversation, and I'll get to that a little later, but the possibilities for dialogue that can happen through the software, that can open other possibilities for writing. I think like one of the big issues right now is we need to start really rethinking about even the kinds of the kind of writing assignments that we're given. Um, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure you recall about two or three years ago, there was a big debate uh, around the language arts circuit about the, the futility of still teaching the five-paragraph essay. And there were a lot of, I mean, I know there were articles in some of the NCT journals about that. And I was like, okay, maybe we need to rethink that the the, the formats and the genres that we're introducing into our classrooms. Need some serious some serious revamping in light of recent events. I've been following the um, Writers Guild of America
3: strike at all in the in the news? I think this brings your question or the issue you raised, um, Sarah, about labor and uh, Christian. The point you made you made about the positioning of the human, because one of the things that they're um, that they're like kind of fighting about is um, the definition of writer. In their contracts, and the um, the members of the Writers Guild are insisting that the qualifier human be put in there, a human writer, because their fear is that um, they're going to have studio execs, or whatever, go into Chat GPT and say, you know, produce me like a, um, a meat cute rom com, uh, you know, and then and uh, it'll 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 like give them a basic outline, and then they'll give it to a um, a, a writer. Um to like punch it up who and they're not coming up with the idea, and they can pay that person less because they're not the person who's producing the ideas, and so that's like one of the 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 real fights we're having, so it's like in that way, these like ideas about where the human starts and stops in the writing process and the effect that has on labor these are not like future speculations like that stuff is like happening right now, like people are striking um uh because of that, and so um it i it'll be very interesting. I think to see where that lands, and uh, and then what sort of trajectories um, it kind of sets in in motion, um, based on whether or not they're able to get human as the uh, qualifier on on writer in their contracts.
5: But I think it also has to be, and I, and I love that you brought up the um, the strike. I've been following it on Twitter a little bit, and 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 one of the things that I think um, kind of specifically thinking about writing um this conversation is gonna have is we we need to start really rethinking um what we mean by genre, for example, and how again how formulaic sometimes our thoughts about genre have become. Because if you again, if you do I love the example of a BQ rom and um yeah, Chat GPT is basically gonna give you Hallmark movie. If you <laughs> if I can just go down that road, but because it's so predictable, it's so predictable. You can, I mean, and that's what that's what AI does. It the algorithm it plays with the predictability of the genre. The five paragraph essay, going back to the previous example, is incredibly predictable. It's incredibly predictable. You can you, you don't even you can see the plot twist. Or from the, the topic sentence of the first paragraph. There's no plot twist in reality. So, one of the things that is going to force us is if our writing has become so predictable that you can throw three keywords in a sentence into, into the ChatGPT Blender and it's going to give you that, we need to go back and start thinking what do we have we let genres become? Um, this, this constrictive superstructure as opposed to a way to guide us and enlighten us into the process of writing. So I think what's going to happen if we want to bring the human, this human element, this human factor, this human dimension back into the writing, we need to bring back a little bit of the unpredictability that happens when you actually write it. And we need to really bring that into instructional practices. So instructional practices cannot be this predictability of the topic sentence, supporting sentence, concluding sentence, that, at least in my case, that's how I learned to write paragraphs in English when I was an undergrad as a second language writer of English. And then a few years later, I realized, you know, that structure that they gave me doesn't work all the time kind of like they said in acrobat, it works 60% of the time, 100% of the time. It's like, I mean, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But second, I mean, I'm thinking about second language writers. They're so used to that particular structure that when they start translating it into an academic article, they struggle. They struggle because that particular structure doesn't lend itself to the shifting nature of academic writing as a text, as a genre in and of itself, that is a remix of multiple genres but that's the part we're not talking about. So we need to go back into what we're talking about when it comes to, this, um, again, the case of writing. What are, what are we telling students writing is? What are we telling them writing looks like? And how are we introducing them to the real process of writing that we, as unpredictable writers, experience on a daily basis? And I think that that's going to be a way where we can start finding this middle ground.
0: All right. These have all been such great points. I forgot I had to ask some questions. Um, so we we have time for for two more questions. And, you know, given the, a lot of the things you have talked about, I think it's interesting to see how you all have situated yourself um, within the current landscape that we're talking about. And Dr. Robinson, you know, you mentioned a little bit specifically about, you know, these are not really future speculations anymore. Like, these things are happening right now and playing out. And I think given y'all's um professionalism in the the field as well and your understanding of current theories of literacy, how has these um how have these like tools or these um types of technologies really pushed your thinking or troubled your thinking in regard to what you currently know in the field
3: in a in an article I published earlier this year um I kind of talked about um this concept of the new autonomous model of literacy and so um there's um that's one thing that that these technologies have made me think about is that the um you know there was the earlier autonomous model of literacy where literacy was thought of as being cognitive processes but then there was the socio-cultural term we realized that literacy was situated it was complex it was entangled with the ideology and so we, we kind of moved forward and uh and so i and so something a concept that i've been playing with is this uh this idea of a new autonomous model of literacy where um, automation takes on a different um, kind of meaning, a more kind of technological um, uh, meaning. And, and so, you know, what does it mean when literacy becomes um, autonomous? And, you know, I think about platforms, like, I don't know if you've heard of the platform called Blinkist um, which is another kind of productivity platform where you can subscribe to and they, uh, It'll give you like book summaries. They call them blinks, so you don't have to look at it. You just kind of blink your way through through the book. And I'm and and so it's. Um, I don't know that they use um, artificial intelligence or whatever, but I think it's another kind of example of um, literacy practices increasingly moving towards uh, automation and efficiency. Um, I remember one of the CEOs of um, one of the automated writing platforms that uses GP, that use GPT three talked about um, that they wanted to kind of. Um, that, that some of the writing was like pounding out low level work. Uh, and that he wanted to kind of that that he wanted, you know, us as people as writers to be engaging at higher level, not doing that kind of really rote low-level work. And kind of to your point that you were just making a moment ago, Raul, I find that those moments of serendipity as a as a writer often happen when I am in that moment where I'm like really struggling, where I'm pounding out like word by word and I'm having to reckon with like the, the 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 production of ideas and engaging with other ideas and and the ability to escape that um, by moving to um, an automation. Um, this it, you know, it, I, I'm just concerned about that potential turn to an a- autonomous model and what that might what that might do to um, you know the production of human subjectivity and creativity, um, especially when it's layered into all that we've probably already read about the kind of forms of social violence that occur in the training data that a lot of these um, programs or um, platforms and technologies are, are trained on. Uh, so, yeah, that's something that I've been thinking of that kind of situates kind of in, in literacy, you know, in like a broader capital L.
2: Brad, that really resonates with something I've been thinking about, too, um, in terms of the qualitative research work that um, I do and want to continue doing. Um, I was talking recently uh, with a colleague about AI-powered qualitative data analysis. And my initial reaction is that that would eliminate the bulk of my analytical process. So, so much of it is getting to know the data reading through it again and again and again to find those themes, to shape something out of it. Um, as a human researcher, as a qualitative researcher, my mind and body are research tools and I'm producing something. I'm not, I'm not discovering something that's there. I'm producing something. And I, I think if we rely on AI generated coding, we lose those things, and maybe it's not a loss. Again, maybe it's a shift. Maybe I need to think about it as a change, um, and you know, the process, the analytical process, will just be shaped differently. But that's something I've been thinking about in terms of how we do our research work as well. And I think even just a,
4: on the on a mundane level, again, too, right? Our our email already does this for us to some extent. So uh, as we're as we're writing a sentence in, in Gmail that sentence gets completed. And it's, it's part of what gets farmed out just slowly, slowly and slowly and slowly until you, know, you kind of realize, no, I don't, I don't want to say it that way, actually. Because part of what writing does is it forms and creates human connections. And it creates human connections in a lot of different ways, but one of them is by surprising people. I was reading something in the, in the New York Times actually just this morning, again, there seems to be something new every day, in the times, and it's always a new experiment, right? So this experiment that I read about this morning was someone using uh, only uh, chatbots to reply to uh, colleagues on Slack or, or via email. So all of the email or all of the Slack was written by a, by a chatbot. And she give the example of one of her colleagues asking her to write a, a witty or a, a funny uh, invitation to an employee party and Uh, so she generated the the text using generative AI and the text on its face was funny right but it actually wasn't received as funny it was just received as kind of like hearty heart heart, right Um, again a mundane moment but one that just shows the ways in which that surprise is really important and what has the potential to shift or get lost with too much of that sort of automation? Is the ways in which writing operates in our lives to to maintain bonds and connections and create new ones?
5: When I'm thinking about these things, uh, one one thing that sometimes comes to my mind and it is a personal thing. The fact that I have a plate, I have a metal plate on my right tibia because I broke my leg in 2007 surgery. So I got a plate. I got a couple of screws, and I got. Things and all that stuff, and how that is part of me, and how that I mean, it's part of me. It's not going to go anywhere. I mean, I'm not going to remove that plate and those screws and those pins, and that those screws. That's going to stay forever. And I, I think about this in the sense of this of the symbiotic relationship we're developing with these technologies, and how one of the things we have to teach our students is us. And I love Sarah's point. It's not to outsource the thinking to the AI to the bots. Number one, because if you, I always tell students when they um, doctoral students when they start using um, qualitative software, I can I can tell I can tell the difference when you use it to support your analysis or when you outsource the analysis. And anybody who's anybody who reads your dissertation is gonna know is gonna be able to tell the difference. We're not going to fool anybody. We know from the very first sent from the very first sentence you use after the title data analysis. We know if you did it, you're sourced You can. We know. We we know. We can tell. But in that sense, um, it's how we start adding this. And I really want to go into a conversation I was having with my partner, Doctor. Polina um She's a professor here in Norway, and we're having this conversation about ChatGPT. And she asked a really interesting question, and I even wrote it in my. A memo here. And it's what if we use ChatGPT in a similar vein that we use books and we use colleagues in the sense that all the time we have conversations about the things we're writing about. So we have trusted colleagues with whom we brainstorm. And sometimes I can just say, hey, Christian, I have a question for you, blah, blah, blah. Christian emails me back and I simply plug that answer into my article and I say, errant personal communication. May, uh, May 8, 2023. We have done that. At some point in our, in, in our writing, we have done that. The personal communication. We have, we have done it at some point in our writing. That we get an email from someone and we, and we ask if we can plug it in. So even the question of, what if we could plug it in part of the conversation with ChatGPT within the larger text that we're writing? Or, as we, uh, going back to Pauline's example about the books, when we look at books, we ex- extract chunks of that. We, and we call it quotations or blog quotes, and we do the quotation thing, we do the APA citation and what have you. Could there be a point that I could take that blog quote from SciencePT and plug it into the larger article? So I, I think I think there is a point that all these technologies, and I'm thinking of AI, I've also been exploring the journey. Um, but for my own research, but also for um my upcoming my forthcoming book on video games um and one thing I did a couple of weeks ago for a talk um i I asked the journey to build me a tensegrity structure and I used that image to actually plug in elements of a conceptual framework i'm I'm developing with my students and I gave it to my students I said, look at this and tell me what you think about it, even the possibility that I can use. An AI generator to give me a three, a semi-3D rendering of a conceptual framework just by throwing a bunch of parameters into, into the program, that offers for me. Yeah, Midjourney did not build my conceptual framework. Midjourney has no idea what's gonna what, what I'm gonna fill it with. But I can say I need this with these parameters, and then I can I can do the rest of the magic. I can just take that, go to Photoshop, and fix it. So it's how we stop being afraid of that. First of all, how we avoid outsourcing our thinking. I think that's the first thing we have to teach our our younger researchers, uh, our master's, and I mean, our undergrad, master's, doctoral students. These are tools that support your thinking. These are not tools you should outsource your thinking. Of course, um, I'm thinking also the corporate tool issue that Sarah was bringing up that this is, I mean, any ideas you throw to chat GPT belong to open AI. They can use it for whatever they want. So there are some ethical quandaries there that we have to think. But at this particular point, my main concern is, how do we develop this sense of this symbiotic relationship with the AI tools in the way that they become, again, we can theorize it going all the way back to cultural historical activity theory, if we want to, how these are tools that can help me develop my craft, but that one of the things we have to do, one of the challenges we have to do in education is how do we develop um, what Kellner used to call the, this level of sophistication in the use of the language, in the use of the to, in the use of the language, the tools, and what have you. So once once you get to that, you can the work you're doing can go to the next level it will develop that foundational sophistication. Then whatever they're going to do is still going to be primitive. So the challenge is how we maximize the human potential that is required as part of this and how that takes us to the next level.
2: I think we can also use it as an occasion to question what we value as sophistication. Like, What does it mean in writing instruction for it to be complex or good? Um, And are there ways that, you know, a student asking ChatGPT to write a five-paragraph essay might serve that student really well um, if their goals are different than your goals as an instructor. If their goal is to finish that assignment, then they've done it. And they have other ways that they think of creating authentic text that we as as instructors just aren't hip to yet. Uh, That's terrible phrasing for that. But what I'm saying is that I think we can also use this as um, a way to investigate our own assumptions about what makes good writing um, and why we're teaching it the way that we do.
0: This has been an important conversation and we're sad to bring it to a close do you have any final thoughts to share? This can be where you are headed next or just thoughts that have emerged today
5: based off of the conversation. Where am I heading next? So that's a really good question. Uh, well, for me, I think it's more, I'm still thinking about all this whole um, AI thing, but again, not losing track of the historical and, and the social consequences of this. Um, so like, I'm... Whatever I'm writing about that, I really want it to be something that can it can help us build on the next wave and not simply do it because it's trending. Because, oh, it's cool to write about AI right now and chat GPT right now, so let's write something. But more like, we need to write about this because AI is not going to go away. I think we've already came to that conclusion. It has been around forever. It has been around for, technically, it has been around for decades. Um, whether we call it AI or we call it with a different name, it's been around for decades, and it's going to be around for a lot more. It's the challenge here is how we move, and that's probably one of the challenges for me as a teacher educator and as a researcher is how we move past from the visceral reactions to curtail it, and we start having conversations with teachers and students about how we integrate it. We bring it into the ecosystem in a way that actually benefits the students. But i mean, going with, with Sarah's comment, with whatever it is that they want to do at that moment. But I think if we bring it and we integrate it, students are going to find ways to really, you know, dazzle us very much with the creativity. But that also, I think it means rethinking some of the, I mean, what we mean by writing, what we mean by genres, what we mean by... Technology, I mean, those are questions that we're going to have to keep wrestling for for a little while longer, and I'll probably continue wrestling with those questions um, tonight and tomorrow and for the next couple of
4: years. I think I want to, I think that's right, the the idea too, of learning from, from history. And one thing that I have thought about a lot recently and is indicative of where I don't know if it's where I'm going so much as it is where I always am. And that is like listening to what teenagers are doing with their literacies right now. I was thinking about this a bit when we were talking about the writing assignments that we are making and how uh, youth are responding to them. Uh, And I I know that they're having these conversations already about what kind of uh, prompts we're giving them and how they're GPT-friendly or not, right? So what are the ways in which youth right now are um, being harmed by AI in different ways. Yes, being more or less critical of AI, yes, but also using it in ways that would surprise us uh, and that are meaningful to them. I had one case study I just finished in which um, a young person was uh, strategically uh, using working algorithms across different social media platforms uh, to give her... Different to create different spaces for herself. One uh, on TikTok was to cultivate a particular kind of identity. And she talked about learning a lot about the kind of person that she was um, through that training of, of the TikTok algorithm or using uh, Instagram for a very, very specific kind of meme. She's like, that's all I want to see there. That's the place I go to be happy. And I want to see those memes and those memes only. And so I might see something else that's funny, but I am not clicking on that because I want this kind of meme, right? So there, there's also these moments of, of joy and of, of that, that youth get from algorithms that, you know, again, speaking about algorithms broadly, I know it's, it's, it's problematic, but that, 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 yes, do harm, but that also um, infuse these lives in ways that I think we need to understand more about um, as you know, we're making policies about, about social media platforms. We've seen this happen in the UK and across the States right now. Um, in particular, so listening listening to youth, I think is something that um, uh, i I plan to to do into the future, and something that I think, as literacy researchers we 've been doing for pretty well for a long time and should keep doing
3: I like you yeah, mentioned joy because it made me think about all the fun that people have had um, with chat GPT kind of in in popular culture since it came out and it 's like um i I don't, I don't really remember a time when um, When what it means to write and what it means to a writer had such kind of discursive power in the culture and people were so excited about writing and what it means to write and like from very superficial levels of all the like deep, deep questions that like lots of people are talking about, you know, what does it mean to be a human writer? So that stuff's like really exciting, but um you know, for, for one of the thing that I'm thinking about right now, I, I teach an introduction to educational technology class, and, and most of the students in it are, um, are, are teacher candidates for elementary school. And I had about 70 students in my um, classes this semester, and one of the um, assignments was to come up with a project-based learning idea that they used to kind of riff off of for the for the whole course. And um, one of the assignments is to kind of curate some apps. Um to go along with it, and I would say I think it was around seven, about ten percent of the uh, of my students said that they wanted to include ChatGPT as one of the apps in their unit as a research tool for their elementary school students. And so I read this and just kind of like freaked out because I was like, ChatGPT is that's it will lie to you and it will do it like authoritatively. We should not be sending like elementary school kids here to um, to GPT to do research, and it really and it struck me at that moment that like uh, as as literacy as teacher educators in general and as literacy teacher educators and researchers, uh, it's important that that we are com- we are helping um, people learn about the technologies before they start using them. So it's kind of like a, before you teach with. Chat GPT, maybe you should learn about Chat GPT before you have your students start doing things with Chat GPT. They sh- you should help them learn about Chat GPT. And so I think that there's a lot of happening with Chat GPT that's that before the about part has happened. And so I think that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. So when I revisit my course in the fall, how do I get that about piece in there? So that they can more ethically and mindfully um, and creatively think about how they might teach and have their students work with them. And then I want, since we're wrapping up, I just want to add a plug, um, which is that um, uh, I and Ty Hallett, another literacy scholar, are um, guest co-editing a special issue of Reading Research Quarterly focused on the theme of literacy in the age of AI. And uh, um, abstracts are due June twelfth. You can find the call online, but I just wanted to use this platform as an opportunity to invite people to uh, contribute. So I hope will be a really exciting um, uh, issue.
2: Well, Brad, now I'm going to have nightmares about <laughs> about teachers telling their students to use ChatGPT as research help. Oh my gosh, that's so scary to me um, because that you know it feeds into this this fear of, um, the single answer replacing a multitude of answers, which as with my story at the beginning, even, uh, an algorithmically curated multitude of answers is problematic, can be problematic, but I fear that the problem of, um, that that kind of confirming what people, confirming stereotypes that you know are in the data will happen even more when we get a single answer from uh from an AI system if we use it as sort of you know a Google search which it is not um so that's terrifying uh but on a positive note <laughs> to talk about what i'm where I'm headed next um I'm really excited to be working with the engage AI institute which is an nsf funded um AI Institute, and uh, we will be working this summer on drafting a an AI Bill of Rights for Kids um, that's based on the White House blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights uh, released this past year. Um, so I'll be asking some students to uh, think through what it might mean to make this uh To make policy recommendations that are relevant to their status as young people, as students, Um, and so I will uh, be so excited to to work with them this summer.
1: A really lovely last note. Thank you for that. Um, This has been an incredibly powerful conversation and we are so appreciative um, to these scholars who not only provided really important Insights, but also left us with some very thought provoking questions about the past, the present, and the future of AI, but not only artificial intelligence, but intelligence and what it means to be human. Lots of leaving us with lots of thought today, but really appreciate that you always centered young people within that as well. So thank you for this work that you've done. Thank you so much to Sarah Burris. Thank you so much to Christian Eric. Thank you so much to Raul Mora. Thank you so much to Brad Robinson. We appreciate your insights and people will learn from you so much today. I just want to note that any text that you referred to uh, today, we'll make sure to link in the description and we'll also be able to make sure we'll link the call for submissions uh, for Dr. Robinson's special edition coming up as well. So Thank you guys so much for joining us. Have a good one.